Listener Production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. Only a handful of Australians have stood on the podium in Formula One and while names like Webber, Ricardo, Alan Jones and the late Sir Jack Brabham are some of the first to come to mind, there is another and his racing resume is impressive. Nowadays, Tim Schenken works on the other side of the pit wall as race director in supercars and clerk of the course at the Australian Grand Prix. But it all began for this motorsport hall of famer by sneaking his parents' car out of the garage. Well, that's right. You want uh, you want the whole story? Yeah. Was it was it a Simca Arond, a little French car? It, it was a Simca Arond. I imagine many of the listeners have never heard of a Simca Arond. Anyhow, Google it and you'll see what it is. Little little four-door, two-door, what, what are we talking, 1.2 litre, what was it? Probably 1.2 litre, uh, four-door French car. But um, I'd been interested in motor racing for a while. I got my licence. Um, I told my mother I was going to go to a barbecue somewhere and I went off to Calder with it. I was a member of a car club, I think it was a, the Mini 850 car club. And they had some sprints at Calder. Uh, just a quarter mile sprints on the straight um, where you could enter. I didn't have a competition licence, had a road licence obviously and I did those uh, sprints in the morning. In the afternoon they were having circuit racing and I stayed on watching a few friends um, running uh, and I noticed no one was really checking if you had licences or who was in the car so I pulled up on the grid. I had a helmet of course from the sprints, pulled up uh, in the marshalling area waved out on the circuit and uh, I ran uh, some laps um, and uh, I thought that was pretty cool and then later on I saw I had, I had my name on uh, a grid sheet so I thought well I might as well line up and have a race <laughs> so I did my first race I did a couple of races I think I won a cup which I took home uh, and hid at home um, all without a licence uh, but don't tell cams because they don't have a statute of limitations. I'll be in trouble. We'll keep that between us and, and anyone who may be listening. So did mum and dad know you were doing this or was it a case of, you know, quickly polish the car, hide it back in the garage and no one will be the wiser? No, they never knew. I think my mother suspected it because I was doing a hill climb many years later and they were there and uh, the commentator made some mention of me doing some, some racing in a Simca, so... But uh, anyhow, no, I got away with it. You've been racing or, or you've had a love of racing since before you were a teenager. Where does that stem from? Was, was it just a childhood passion for magazines and things like that? Was it the influence of family? Where did it come from? Uh, well, it came at school. I was, uh, you know, I was born in Sydney and we moved to Melbourne when I was about 12. And I was at school, the Campbell Grammar School. And there was a boy there. Uh, whose father did some hill climbing and he lived not far away and we went around, I went around to his house over a weekend and there was this little race car there with a motorcycle engine or hill climb car and something caught my imagination and from that time onwards all I wanted to be was uh, a motor racing driver. How did it go from being obsession to um, occupation for you and what, what was the point where you thought yeah I could absolutely make a crack at this it wouldn't just be a, uh, a weekend hobby it was pretty much straight away I, I um, was uh, madly interested in in uh, well I was I was going to hill climbs with this uh, chap Leon Bernadou was his name 
In fact, uh, I must have been 13, I built a, a go-kart. I saw an article in an American magazine called Popular Mechanics, I think it was called, and, uh, and it might have been the first go-kart in Australia. Um, and I built that up. I got a, a one-two-five two-stroke engine from a local motorcycle wrecker and built this thing up. And uh, we used to go out in those days, places like North Baldwin and Warrandyte and wherever, Doncaster were all, um, uh, they were just starting to be uh, developed, uh, housing's going in there. They put the roads in first and I used to run this thing up and down around there. But um, I very quickly latched on to uh, to motor racing, to the international scene for whatever reason. I used to read all the British magazines from front cover to back cover. Um, my hero was Sterling Moss, it still is today. Now, some people would say, why not Jack Brabham? Well, Jack hadn't quite got on the scene then, and being English magazines, it was full of uh, Sterling Moss. Uh, and I was a passionate, you know, a passionate to go motor racing be a professional driver and I couldn't see how school was going to help me they certainly didn't tell you about driving or anything to do with motor racing at school what were the learnings from the go-kart and whatever happened to it do you know I've got no idea where where that would be uh, now uh, well from there I went on um, and I bought an Austin A30 um, not the Peter Brock car it was, must have been about the same time but my car had a um, my, uh, my car had an Austin Healey 1000cc uh, Sprite engine in um, and I started hill climbing that uh, and then I bought a Lotus 18 and it was when I was racing the Lotus 18 so by that stage I was in my 20s um, that I, uh, I raced at Warwick Farm and after the race David Mackay um, came up and asked what I was what I was thinking of what I was going to do just asking some questions and I said I want to be a, a Grand Prix driver and he said well you need to go overseas so at the age of 22 I got onto a boat um, here in uh, Port Melbourne and sailed off one way ticket to England. How were you funding this mission and w- what was the grand plan or was it literally just let's roll the dice here? I don't, well the grand plan was to be a Grand Prix driver yeah to be a world champion um so i just took it uh, a day at a time i'd saved up money i had the lotus 18 i borrowed some money from my father against the lotus uh, 18 the, the the sale of that um someone gave me the tickets i might have been my parents gave me the, the bought the ticket for the passage and i arrived in london uh, in the middle of uh, winter, in the very, very early 1966, went to Earl's Court, of course. In those days, it was called Kangaroo Valley, where all the Australians went. And I got a job with a company called uh, the Checkered Flag, which in those days was running the works assisted f- uh, f- uh, Brabham Formula Junior team, or Formula 3 team as it was. And it just sort of progressed from there. I bought a Lotus 22 and modified it and started racing in that and... How hands-on were you in that period? Obviously, you're trying to make ends meet in many respects, so you have to be. Did you enjoy that that side of things from the, the car preparation and, and things like that? Yes, I mean, it, it was the same in Australia. I prepared my own Lotus 18. I had a friend who, was, uh, who used to come to the races. He came to England with me as well, but I bought this Lotus 22. Um, I was lucky because uh, I used to go through the parts bin, the rubbish bin at... Um, at the chequered flag and get the old rose joints and bits and pieces and whatever and tidy them all up and put them onto this uh, 
Lotus uh, Lotus 22. But I just lived for motor racing, and you know, I had a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, four of us uh, were living there. Mattresses on the floor, but I mean, that was only to sleep because the rest of the time it was full-on uh, motor racing. Lots of racing uh, in that late 60s period for you from winning the Formula Ford title in 1968 and the the British Formula 3 championship that same year. Was that something you did at the same race meetings? How busy were you with all that stuff? Well, that was an incredible year. 68. In 1968, I did 68 race meetings and I won 48 races. Now, you you must wonder how that happens. Well, I was doing Formula Ford and Formula 3. The race meetings were one-day race meetings. You could race on, on Saturday at Silverstone and uh, Sunday at Brands Hatch, doing Formula Ford and Formula 3. Sometimes there were two heats in a final. So it was just, it was in the car the whole time. It was like sitting here now talking to you. It was just natural for me to, uh, to sit in a race car. You won the Formula Ford title in a Merlin, if that serves me, if memory serves. And that was the first Merlin that they'd, they'd built. What was that car like? We're talking uh, open-wheeler, little 1600cc Ford engine. What was it like? Well, it's, it was a forerunner to, to Formula Ford as to what you see today. I mean, when I say that, you can't compare the two types of car, of course, because a modern or current Formula Ford cars are quite a progressive car, of course, all inboard suspension and whatever else. But... Um, uh, no, it's a, just a. It was, I guess, a Formula Three car with a with a 1600 Cortina engine, um, but uh, that was provided by Merlins. Uh, they also introduced me to an engine builder. He provided the engine, and I was actually that year I was living off my earnings. I was driving the Formula Three car. I was driving off my winning, should I say, the Formula Three car. I was driving uh, it was a Chevron. It was owned by. Uh, Sports Motors Manchester, a company that was selling sports cars there. It was a Lotus dealership as well. And I had a percentage of the prize money that that car earned and I could live as being a professional driver. Quite amazing. Yeah, very amazing at still quite a, a, a young age. The difference in the cars, I mean, the, the Formula 3 car clearly had more power. Racing drivers like getting behind the, the wheel of anything normally, and certainly if it's got more power or, or aero support, they're quite keen. How different was it to the, the Formula Ford, and was there an adjustment process in all of that? It wasn't really, you know, the power was much the same. The difference, a Formula Ford car, because it's a modified uh, road engine it, it's like a, a road car so it doesn't rev very high the formula 3 car on the other hand was a thousand cc and they revved to 10,000 rpm so they had very little torque and you just you had a and you had a four-speed gearbox and you had to have the gear ratios right for uh, that particular car it was very different uh, the other thing about the formula ford car it ran on road tires formula 3 car ran on racing tires but it was through that that I got my introduction to Brabham's and the following year in uh, 1969 I drove the factory Formula 3 Brabham I say the factory Formula 3 Brabham it's what they call a works assisted car they loaned the car to uh, Rodney Bloor, Sports Motors Manchester and he ran the car he had the engines, a mechanic and we traipsed around Europe in a Ford Zodiac uh, with the back seats out, a spare engine in there, a nose cone, gear ratios, some uh, a few wishbones and bits and pieces, best set of wheels, wet weather tyres, and an open trailer on the back with the Formula 3 car. But uh, you know, at the same time, you had Ronnie Peterson and um, Emerson Fittipaldi doing the same thing. That was 
that was motor racing in those days. We'll talk more about those legends and your time uh, with them um, in a moment. I want to uh, talk about the fact that you'd read and dreamt of going to England and now here you are and you're driving on some of the, the famous racetracks that the, that place is known for, from Brands Hatch to Silverstone and, and so on. How'd that make you feel? Well, you know, I, and it didn't... It didn't overawe me at all. I mean, that was I was a professional racing driver, and they're the places you went to. Um, I suppose the great thing about doing Formula Three in Europe in 1969 were a lot of the races were with the European Formula Three Championship, where you had Grand Prix drivers running cars, and some of the Grand Prix owners also were running Formula Two teams, and also were supporting some uh, Grands Prix as well. So. That was the that was the excitement of it all. When did that lead into your first foray into Formula One? I mean, the CV says that you you made it to, to Formula One. There's a podium there as well, and, and you raced there from seventy to seventy four. But what was the entree? What was the first sort of phone call or, or introduction to someone where okay, this is you know going to lead to to an opportunity here? Well, at the end of '69, I was I then uh, progressed to uh, the European Formula Three, sorry, Formula Two Championship, which again with uh, Sports Motors Manchester. Um, that was a lot more competitive. In those days, you had Grand Prix drivers also uh, competing in that. So, although I didn't have a, I had reliability issues, but uh, I had some good results and I could run towards the front. Um, and then uh, during the year. There was that terrible accident of Piers Courage, who was killed at Zandvoort, driving Frank Williams' Di Tommaso car, a Formula One car. And um, I knew, I sort of knew of Frank. I knew Frank, I guess, just to say hello. But I took a deep breath after that and went uh, went to see him and to ask if uh, he'd consider me driving uh, uh, after Piers. And he said yes. So that was. That was the start of it. And I have to tell you, that was a deep breath to have to go and uh, make an approach like that. But uh, as I say, he agreed. And I think I did the last four or five Grands Prix in 1970. I don't think I finished anything. The car broke every time, but that was the way it was. It was, to come back to your point about the dangers, that... that you know, Formula One is its safety record now super impressive. There's always you know a constant naval gaze and constant way to improve the sport. It was enormously dangerous back then. Were you ever uh, you know how aware of that were you? Did you just compartmentalise that and park it out of your mind? What'd you do? Well, I suppose I might have been a bit naive, or you believed in yourself. I don't really know what the answer is. It was it was horrendous because there were some terrible tragedies, and you went to. Uh, you, you lost a driver at a race meeting you might have gone to a funeral or might have been a lot of publicity about it in the in the newspapers because at that time the newspapers are only interested in those uh, in formula one and crashes and fatalities but then you'd be at another race meeting the following weekend it was if nothing had had happened so i think it was just a belief it wouldn't happen to you and and uh, in, in this in sort of my situation, I think a lot of sportsmen are the same. You're so passionate about something, you don't see the downside. You don't see that. And certainly in motor racing, I didn't see the tragedy. The, the flip side, of course, is that the chance to drive a Formula One car is, is, I would imagine, just this intoxicating thing. What did it feel like to drive? What are, you, what are your memories of, of you know, those first experiences in Formula One? I suppose the first experiences were, it seemed very odd to me because I used to 
stand uh, behind the fence, look over the fence at places like Sandown and uh, watch the Tasman series. And there was Stewart and Brabham and Holm and McLaren and Surtees and these people racing there. And then some years later, I was on the grid with them. Um, so that was sort of an odd sort of feeling, but in a way you very quickly weren't intimidated by maybe initially a bit but then once you got racing it was just another race car you were another driver you were trying to beat from the formula one side of things you know there's some great old pictures of you with very suave looking tim schenken with sideburns with the likes of um graham hill with ronnie peterson who you you mentioned before it was an incredible era for the sport and some legendary names that, that came through it must have been amazing to be a part of Yes, it is, but, um, well, it was, should I say. Um, and I look back at that now, to be honest, and it's almost as if it was another life. Really? Uh, it's, it's hard to believe. You know, I was up there doing Formula One you know, so many years ago. But um, you're never very close to the drivers because, of course, they were the enemy. I, I don't know another word for it because they were the people you were passionate about beating. So I never, apart from Ronnie Peterson... Um, I didn't really know, uh, you didn't really have a close relationship with any of the other drivers. You just kept your distance. The record shows a, a podium there over 34 starts in the in the game, but it probably didn't yield you, it's fair to say, the kind of success that you'd enjoyed in, in the formula just beneath it. Timing's a big thing in, in Formula One. It really depends on the car that you get in. I mean, it do, it's not a question of your ability. It's, it's also about the wheels beneath you, isn't it? Yeah, that's true, and uh, I mean, I, I uh, had that year with Brabham's. End of the year, Ron Turanak told me that uh, uh, he'd sold the company to Bernie Eccleston. I sort of knew Bernie a little bit. He would have been looking after Jock and Renton, I think, giving his advice to Emerson Fittipaldi, but um, Ron actually said, well, I, I'm not sure how this chap's going to run the business. Maybe you should look somewhere else. So I went off to Surtees and he could say that was a, an, an error. Perhaps I should have stayed with Eccleston. He certainly knew how to run a race team. Um, and it didn't work out with Surtees. Uh, I mean, I had great relationship problems with John Surtees, as many of the drivers who drove for him uh, did. But um, uh, when I look back now, look, I'm here today. So, And you spoke about the for tragedies and whatever. And I look at a grid... Uh, in one of the races I'd driven in the 70s now look who's around today I mean it's um, it's quite a moment when you do that because so few of them are around today You mentioned Ron Turanak there a moment ago legendary Australian engineer in in many respects with Sir Jack Brabham and working with him you also got to work with a very young Ron Dennis didn't you with what was Rondell Racing back then before he went on and became a very significant figure in the sport with McLaren and very successful in the in the sport as a as a team owner well, that's right. I met Ron uh, and his partner, uh, Neil Trundle. That's how Rondell was formed. The name Rondell was formed uh, because it, they were mechanics for Jack's uh, team. So when I was doing Formula 3 and Formula 2, I was down at the factory. So I knew those two uh, lads. But in 70, must have been 71, one, 71 Ron had bigger plans um, and... Uh, he had found uh, someone who'd be prepared to back him and uh, I think Ron Turanak lent him a couple of cars just the, uh, the engine, uh, without the engine for the year to go and uh, campaign the European uh, Formula 2 Championship. So 
with Graham Hill, uh, uh, who also agreed to drive with Ron. Uh, we went and started uh, with with Ron then, and I think your next question is going to be, did you see where Ron was going? Well, sort of now when I look back, I did, because Ron's cars were beautifully prepared. His truck was always very clean. Um, people, you know, he had a dream, and a presentation was part of that. Um, and uh, if you're going to find sponsors, you, you've obviously got to have... Uh, uh, the, the presentation is so important and some people sort of they called him team dream or they called him team briefcase he was one of the first uh, formula one or f- first uh, team managers or team owners should i say not necessarily formula one with a briefcase so uh they were perhaps a bit unkind to him but uh it, you know they, they were great times actually great times this is greg rust and you're listening to rusty's garage more with tim schenken in a moment In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate riders, drivers, designers and collectors I know. It mightn't look like it, but at times, Mad Mike Wadette is actually looking for perfection when he drifts his fire-breathing, rotary-powered Mazdas. And this global superstar seems to catch the uncatchable slide. It's really about just making that car an extension of your body. And then once you've... Once you've got that, it's like you can almost just place the car and throw it as hard as you can and you you find the absolute extremes. And as a driver, I think what's the scariest part is the technology is progressing faster than the drivers. Like, it's seriously scary to drive these cars these days with with drifting as much as it looks like that we want the cars to be slippery so we can slide around the track. We're actually trying to get as much grip as possible. Listen to the full episode with Mad Mike here on Rusty's Garage. Apex, when you look through a corner, the apex is where you come closest to the inner part of that corner. This is an important thing to identify and work with if you want to improve your cornering efficiency or just not crash. I want to touch on your sports car career now. It was wonderful to see Ferrari uh, embrace you, I think, as part of their 70th anniversary celebrations. You had a great chapter in your career with them, sports car racing. How did that... I mean, you always seemed to... Drivers back then seemed to do so much racing, whether it was open wheelers or sports cars, whatever it may have been. But how did the entree into sports car racing come about? Well, that started uh, 1971 at Monza. Um and during I was I was driving for Babins it was the Grand Prix and a girl came up to a woman came up to me and said uh, uh, that I should come to the Ferrari track after practice uh, to meet their team manager Peter Shetty talk about sports car racing the following year with Ferrari there had already been an announcement Ferrari was going to enter some cars I think it was the world championship of makes I think this uh, championship was called then uh, and to be honest, I thought it was someone having a lend of me, so I ignored that. And um, then later, uh, after the next practice, the woman came out of being the following day, came up. And I, again, I said, oh, yeah, when I've got time, I'll pop down. So, uh, uh, and then eventually she came again and said, look, Mr. Schenken, if you don't come with me now, there won't be an opportunity for you to drive for Ferrari. And I thought, oh, maybe I should just follow her. So I still had my overalls on. And uh, I followed, I sort of kept a few steps behind her, just down to the Ferrari uh, transporter, or truck as it was in those days, um, and thinking, oh, at any moment someone's going to say, hey, you idiot, Schenken. (laughs) 
Uh, but we got all the way to the truck, into the truck. Peter Shetty there, he was in a hell of a state because Enzo Ferrari had come up the night before to meet me. They'd had to stay overnight. You brushed Enzo Ferrari? <laughs> well, I didn't know I'd brushed him off at, uh, until that moment. Um, and uh, so still with my overalls on, they took me immediately to a village uh, just near uh, Monza and into the dining room there in the back corner was Enzo Ferrari. So with an interpreter... I did my deal there. So they probably thought I was super cool, but frankly, I, was, <laughs> I thought I was being tricked. What was he like? I mean, he's just a remarkable figure in the history of anything automotive. What was he like to, to work with and to talk to and deal with? Well, I didn't really work with him because apart from signing a contract and then later on uh, when we were racing, we'd do a test session at... Um, with the sports cars, maybe at Monza he would turn up or the following year Firano opened and he would always come there if the cars were running there, have lunch with him uh, as well at um, at the factory um, in Maranello. But the, the thing about Enzo was that you could tell he was a special person. There was something about him. It was the same with Ayet and Senna. They, they're sort of special people. You can't put your finger on it, but when you're talking to them, you know you're with someone who's different from everyone else. A kind of aura, I guess you could yes. say. Yes, yes. So you enjoyed success in endurance races with them from the 1000k race in Buenos Aires, uh, also at the, at the Nürburgring. Um, why did it work so well for you? Was it cars? Was it the combo of people? I mean, that's a pretty special chapter. Well, it, first of all, the first year I was driving with Ronnie Peterson and Ronnie Peterson was uh, the quickest thing uh, in motor racing in those days. Uh, they used to say about Ronnie, he only had two speeds, either flat out or at home in the garage. Um, so that was a great driving with Ronnie. But Ronnie was such a natural driver, he didn't have any set-up skills. Um, so quite often he'd may run the car first. I'd got in and drive the car and I had trouble driving the thing quickly and adjust the car, got the car right. When that first happened, I thought, my God, he's going to be blitz me in times. So he never actually went any faster. It just made the car easier to drive and it took less out on the car and the tyres and the brakes and whatever else. But, um, I mean, they were, they were great times uh, and we had some pretty formidable... Uh, Teammates had Ixon, Andretti and Redman uh, there as well. Uh, they had the token uh, Italian driver, Turo Mazzario. But they were, um, you know, they were pretty formidable. And we had the best cars in, uh, in 72. Was it 72? Yes, 72. In 73 was a different story. Um, Ferrari pulled back a bit on their sports car program to concentrate on Formula One. My teammate was Carlos Reutemann. And I got on well with Carlos, so with same size like Ronnie, we like the car set up the same. But the competition was the Matra team who came with a monocoque chassis and because Matra was involved in the aircraft industry, the car was, the, the aerodynamics of the car were probably, des, probably uh, uh, designed, refined, and they were much better cars. So we weren't, uh, we weren't king of the kids uh, in uh, King of the Mountain in 73. Describe for us the 72 car because, uh, you know, we're talking uh, open top sports car. What kind of engine, how much horsepower, what was it like to steer? Well, it had the flat 12 3-litre Formula 1 engine, detuned slightly because they were 1,000 kilometre races. 
uh, I guess it had 450 brake horsepower. It was a tube chassis, uh, short uh, short wheelbase, so they were quite difficult to drive uh, on through fast corners. The following year, they had uh, better aerodynamics and a longer a longer wheelbase. But uh, so was your your typical sports car of the time. Lovely gearbox in the Ferrari, very different from the Hewland gearbox, was heavy and clunky. The uh, Ferrari gearbox you could just change with your two fingers. It was a lovely gearbox. You had an opportunity, if I'm right here, to buy one at some stage. Uh, why didn't you? Do you regret that? And <laughs> Tell us about that story. Well, yes, at the end of 72, uh, it must have been, Enzo Ferrari offered the drivers you could buy one of those cars and he offered them for £12,500 which today is about $25,000 and you'd, you'd say today well Tim why didn't you buy them all <laughs> uh, well £12,500 was a lot of money and just to sort of put it into context I had a house in Maidenhead which was a nice area just outside uh, London uh, which I bought for £7,000 and I had a mortgage on it to, to 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 pay it off. So when you look today at the value of that house, and maybe the Ferrari has be worth a fair bit more, but that sort of puts it in context. You could buy a, a, a house standing on its own, three bedrooms, uh, for seven thousand pounds, or a Ferrari race car, which was no good to me because well, you know what was I going? People paid me to drive their cars. I didn't think ahead of what the value of this could be. I don't think anybody did in those days uh, for, for nearly double the amount. Crazy. Was it 312B? What was, which car was it? Well, I think they call it 312PB because there's a bit of confusion because they also refer to the Formula One car of the time as a 312B. So I think they put PB in front of it. Prototype Boxster. Boxster was the type of engine. Some great circuits you got to drive at during your, your career. Uh, people listening will be very interested in Nürburgring or, or Nordschleife. I mean, it's still looked upon as this daunting, yet, uh, you know, it, it's a must-see, a must-do place if you can. What was it like to drive some of those cars in that period around that place? Well, I, you know, I quite enjoyed the Nürburgring. I, I don't know why. A lot of people talk about it as being the green hell and this, that and the other. But for some reason... It just seemed to suit my style. But I started first at Nürburgring in 1969, it must have been, driving for Ford Germany in a 72-hour touring car race (laughs) with three drivers on the north and south circuit. So the total lap distance was 30 kilometres. That's incredible. Could you... Did you ever properly familiarise yourself? I know that's a long race, so maybe you could, but did you ever feel like you've absolutely mastered that? Well, you never quite master the Nürburgring. It's funny because when you race against, if you're racing against another driver, uh, you find that in some parts you're sort of, you're better than he is and other bits he's better than you are. But I've always sort of had a knack of learning roads, uh, learning tracks, so... We didn't do the. We didn't finish the 72-hour race, but once, uh, uh, once I'd practiced and started the race, uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I was there uh, a couple of years ago, and I could drive around on you which every way, uh, which way the corners went, so uh, over blind crests and whatever. Not that I was driving the same speed as in a race car, but uh, you just remember these things. One of the things that is on your CV as well is that for a time you built race cars. 
didn't you? Tell us a little bit about that foray and the learnings from it and things like that. Well, in 76, uh, I got married and I was, I was out of Formula One. I was doing a German GT championship and some World Sports Car Championship races. Um, and I could see I wasn't going to get back into Formula One. And that's all I wanted to do. Formula One is, is, is such a... Uh, status above everything else you do maybe today WEC is uh, pretty close to it but and once I could see I couldn't get back into Formula One I've lost that opportunity it wasn't quite the same for me so in in 76 uh, I was looking at stopping and uh, someone had come to me with a with an idea to build Formula Ford cars and I went to show in New Zealand chap was quite uh, friendly with Howden Ganley also had done some Formula One racing and showed him that the, the proposal and uh, he had it for the night and came back the following day and said actually I looked at that and he was a bit of a businessman had some experience in in uh, running his own uh, uh, company um, and the following uh, morning he came back he said you know I've looked at that and that's that's all quite uh, looks like that could happen but rather than you going with this other chap why don't you and I do this so that's uh, that's where we started and we, we bought uh, the plans and parts and bits and pieces from a a company that had gone broke it was called uh, Motor Racing Enterprises MRE I think it was, they'd had a Formula 3 project on the way and they'd built a few uh, chassis and bodywork and whatever else so we bought that and we started a company we called it Tiger, TI from Tim and GA from uh, Ganley most people say Tiger, we used to say Tiger and so we started building Formula Ford cars and our name sort of sold initially, sold the cars initially because we were people knew us and uh, off we were and running and uh, I left the company in 82 and we'd built something like 450 cars. Amazing. What ultimately brought you back to Australia? Was it the decision just for family? What, what, what ultimately brought you back home? Well, in the late 70s, I was married. Uh, we had a son and we had twin daughters and you know i think the english weather was starting to get to me and uh, i wanted to come back to australia and i started writing letters to people here but nothing was really coming this way for me um and i had an offer to go and run a sports car IMSA sports car team with john fitzpatrick or for john fitzpatrick out of san diego uh so i went over there the whole family went over there these are the days where you could live there and uh, you didn't need a green card and things were pretty lax um, and uh, so I spent two years there and at the point John at, right at the end of must have been 83 John was going to come back to England uh, and uh, compete in the world uh, sports car championship he'd bought a 956 Porsche um, so I was at two minds quite what to do I still wanted to go to Australia I'd still been in contact with people in Australia and then out of the blue cams rang me and um, contacted me and asked me to fly out and uh, interview for a job. So uh, You've been with them ever since, haven't you? The Confederation of Australian Motorsport. Well, you're right, and that's what I say. It's a different life now. So I moved over the other side of the fence and became involved in the administration of uh, motorsport in Australia. And I was lucky because I arrived in 84. Uh, The Light Car Club had a world... uh, was they, yeah, yeah, Group C it was yeah. called, I think, World Sports Car Race at, uh, at um, Sandown. 
the Grand Prix came to Adelaide in 85. Shell backed the Australian Touring Car Championship around the same time. Uh, the FIA introduced the role of race director. So it all sort of morphed into me becoming the race director for the Australian Touring Car Championship. And you've had a stellar career there and I think if you know you talked about Formula One coming to Adelaide in the 80s there you've been clunk of the course at all of them since you've worked on the inaugural Singapore Grand Prix I mean this whole administrative aspect of your career really took off why do you I mean you've got a great resume we've covered that but why do you think it, it went so well on the administrative side and what do you enjoy about it so much? Well, I'm still passionate about motor racing. I love motor racing, and that's my that's my whole life. Uh, I ask my family about that, and <laughs> they've been very good, and uh, and uh, I've always had all the support uh, to do this. But it's just a passion for the sport. And the the great thing is, or the thing to me is, you never really get on top of it. Things are changing. Cars are developing cars getting faster the styles of driving are changing it's not more competitive now uh, the regulations are evolving the whole time so it's always a challenge you, you can't sit back there and think oh i've done all of this and this is easy my good buddy neil crompton often uses the that saying poacher turned gamekeeper you're showing no signs of slowing down are, are, is you know is, is it something that you want to continue for, for a long while to come what's the plan there Oh, I wouldn't know what else to do. I, I can't imagine not being involved, to be honest. Is there, among all of the cars you've driven, is there a favourite that's got a kind of special place in your heart and why? No, there isn't really. I mean, it sounds a bit odd to say. They're really the tools of the trade. So, and that was one of the reasons I didn't buy that uh, Ferrari. Um so you enjoy the cars you won in, but to be honest, when you look at the cars today, it's hard to imagine the ones I raced, they were state-of-the-art at the time, which they were. Is there a resto project currently in the Schenken garage at home, and if not, why not? Well, there isn't. I've never really thought of it. I haven't got the time to do it. I'm probably busier now than I was when I was at the peak of my, my uh, racing career. Um, as you know, I'm involved with the FIA. I'm doing track inspections for the FIA. I'm president of the Circuits Commission, so there are meetings there to attend. So um, I'm busier than ever. Um, I, I wouldn't mind driving a car that I used to watch, the old Ferraris, Maserati 250F, early rear-engined uh, Coopers. Uh, not race them, but I wouldn't mind having a, a run in one. But uh, otherwise, no, I've got no... Uh, got no ambition and no money to buy them i should have bought them when they when they were being sold when they were a couple of years out of date and people were putting replacing the the climax engines with holden engines if you had that little lotto win tucked away and if your lovely wife said yes okay off you go what would you buy and what would you put in the garage what would I buy? Could be anything. Road car, you know. Yeah, I probably... You know what? I've always quite liked the Lotus Cortina. And I figure that would be a nice little car to run. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's obviously a saloon car, so it's not going to hurt you if it uh, turns over. What sort of specification are we talking in your mind? Perhaps even a colour? Well, you'd have to have white with the green stripe on a Jimmy Clark-style car. Twin cam... Cosworth Ford engine, didn't it? 1600cc. So you, you would have it the way it was uh, was raced at the time. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. 
Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.